Section 28 of the Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 26. Letters, 1886-87, to 87, Jane Clemens' Romance, Unmailed Letters, etc. When Clemens had been platforming with Cable and returned to Hartford for his Christmas vacation, the Warner and Clemens families had joined in preparing for him a surprise performance of The Prince and the Pauper. The Clemens household was always given to theatricals, and it was about this time that scenery and a stage were prepared, mainly by the sculptor Gerhardt, for these home performances, after which productions of The Prince and the Pauper were given with considerable regularity to audiences consisting of parents and invited friends. The subject is a fascinating one, but it has been dwelt upon elsewhere. We get a glimpse of one of these occasions as well as of Mark Twain's financial progress in the next brief to w d howells in boston january three eighty six my dear howells the date set for the prince and pauper play is ten days hence january thirteen i hope you and pillar can take a train that arrives here during the day the one that leaves boston toward the end of the afternoon would be a trifle late the performance would have already begun when you reached the house I'm out of the woods. On the last day of the year, I had paid out $182,000 on the grant book, and it was totally free from debt. Yours ever, Mark. Mark Twain's mother was a woman of sturdy character and with a keen sense of humor and tender sympathies. Her husband, John Marshall Clemens, had been a man of high moral character, honored by all who knew him respected and apparently loved by his wife. No one would ever have supposed that during all her years of marriage, and almost to her death, she carried a secret romance that would only be told at last in the weary disappointment of old age. It is a curious story, and it came to light in this curious way. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Hartford, May 1986 my dear howells here's a secret a most curious and pathetic romance which has just come to light read these things but don't mention them last fall my old mother then eighty-two took a notion to attend a convention of old settlers of the mississippi valley in an iowa town my brother's wife was astonished and represented to her the hardships and fatigues of such a trip and said my mother might possibly not even survive them, and said there could be no possible interest for her in such a meeting in such a crowd. But my mother insisted, and persisted, and finally gained her point. They started, and all the way my mother was young again with excitement, interest, eagerness, anticipation. They reached the town and the hotel my mother strode with the same eagerness in her eye and her step to the counter and said is dr barrett of st louis here no he was here 
but he returned to St. Louis this morning. Will he come again? No. My mother turned away, the fire all gone from her, and said, Let us go home. They went straight back to Keokuk. My mother sat silent and thinking for many days, a thing which had never happened before. Then one day she said, I will tell you a secret. When I was eighteen, a young medical student named Barrett lived in Columbia, Kentucky, eighteen miles away, and he used to ride over to see me. This continued for some time. I loved him with my whole heart, and I knew that he felt the same toward me, though no words had been spoken. He was too bashful to speak. He could not do it. Everybody supposed we were engaged, took it for granted we were but we were not. By and by there was to be a party in a neighboring town, and he wrote my uncle telling him his feelings, and asking him to drive me over in his buggy and let him, Barrett, drive me back, so that he might have that opportunity to propose. My uncle should have done as he was asked without explaining anything to me, but instead he read me the letter, and then, of course, I could not go and did not. He, Barrett, left the country presently, and I, to stop the clacking tongues and to show him that I did not care, married in a pet. In all these sixty-four years I have not seen him since. I saw in a paper that he was going to attend that old settler's convention. Only three hours before we reached that hotel he had been standing there. Since then, her memory is wholly faded out and gone, and now she writes letters to the schoolmates who had been dead forty years, and wonders why they neglect her and do not answer. Think of her carrying that pathetic burden in her old heart sixty-four years, and no human being ever suspecting it. Yours ever, Mark. We do not get the idea from this letter that those two long-ago sweethearts quarreled, but Mark Twain once spoke of their having done so, and there may have been a disagreement, assuming that there was a subsequent meeting. It does not matter now. In speaking of it, Mark Twain once said, It is as pathetic a romance as any that has crossed the field of my personal experience in a long lifetime. Footnote. When Mark Twain a biography was written, this letter had not come to light, and the matter was stated there in accordance with Mark Twain's latest memory of it. End of footnote. Howells wrote, After all, how poor and hackneyed all the inventions are compared with the simple and stately facts. Who could have imagined such a heartbreak as that? Yet it went along with the fulfillment of everyday duty and made no more noise than a grave underfoot. I doubt if fiction will ever get the knack of such things. Jane Clemens now lived with her son Orion and his wife in Keokuk, where she was more contented than elsewhere. In these later days her memory had become erratic, her realization of events about her uncertain. But there were times when she was quite her former self, remembering clearly and talking with her old-time gaiety of spirit. Mark Twain frequently sent her playful letters to amuse her letters full of such boyish gaiety as had amused her long years before. The one that follows is a fair example. 
It was written after a visit which Clemens and his family had paid to Keokuk. To Jane Clemens in Keokuk, Elmira, August 7, 86. Dear Ma, I heard that Molly and Orion and Pamela had been sick, but I see by your letter that they are much better now, or nearly well. When we visited you a month ago, it seemed to us that your Keokuk weather was pretty hot. Jean and Clara sat up in bed at Mrs. McElroy's and cried about it, and so did I. But I judge by your letter that it has cooled down now, so that a person is comparatively comfortable with his skin off. Well, it did need cooling. I remember that I burnt a hole in my shirt there with some ice cream that fell on it and Miss Jenkins told me they never used a stove, but cooked their meals on a marble-topped table in the drawing-room, just with the natural heat. If anybody else had told me, I would not have believed it. I was told by the Bishop of Keokuk that he did not allow crying at funerals, because it scalded the furniture. If Miss Jenkins had told me that, I would have believed it. This reminds me that you speak of Dr. Jenkins and his family as if they were strangers to me. Indeed, they are not. Don't you suppose I remember gratefully how tender the doctor was with Jean when she hurt her arm, and how quickly he got the pain out of the hurt, whereas I supposed it was going to last at least an hour? No, I don't forget some things as easily as I do others. Yes, it was pretty hot weather. Now, here, when a person is going to die, he is always in a sweat about where he is going to. But in Keokuk, of course, they don't care, because they are fixed for everything. It has set me reflecting. It has taught me a lesson. By and by, when my health fails, I am going to put all my affairs in order, and bid good-bye to my friends here, and kill all the people I don't like, and go out to Keokuk and prepare for death. They are all well in this family, and we all send love. Affectionately, your son, Sam. The ways of city officials and corporations are often past understanding, and Mark Twain sometimes found it necessary to write picturesque letters of protest. The following, to a Hartford Lighting Company, is a fair example of these documents. To a Gas and Electric Lighting Company in Hartford. Gentlemen, there are but two places in our whole street where lights could be of any value by any accident, and you have measured and appointed your intervals so ingeniously as to leave each of those places in the center of a couple of hundred yards of solid darkness. When I noticed that you were setting one of your lights in such a way that I could almost see how to get into my gate at night, I suspected that it was a piece of carelessness on the part of the workman, and would be corrected as soon as you should go around inspecting and find it out. My judgment was right. It is always right when you are concerned. For fifteen years, in spite of my prayers and tears, you persistently kept a gas lamp exactly halfway between my gates so that I couldn't find either of them after dark and then furnished such execrable gas that I had to hang a danger signal on the lamp post to keep teams from running into it nights. Now I suppose your present idea is to leave us a little more in the dark. 
don't mind us out our way we possess but one vote apiece and no rights which you are in any way bound to respect please take your electric light and go to but never mind it is not for me to suggest you will probably find the way and anyway you can reasonably count on divine assistance if you lose your bearings s l clemens e-text editor's note twain wrote another note to hartford gas and electric which he may not have mailed and which Payne does not include in these volumes gentlemen some day you are going to move me almost to the point of irritation with your goddamn chuckle-headed fashion of turning off your goddamn gas without giving notice to your goddamn parishioners and you did it again last night end of e-text editor's note frequently clemens did not send letters of this sort after they were written sometimes he realized the uselessness of such protest sometimes the mere writing of them had furnished the necessary relief and he put the letter away or into the waste-basket and wrote something more temperate or nothing at all a few such letters here follow clemens was all the time receiving application from people who wished him to recommend one article or another books plays tobacco and what not they were generally persistent people unable to accept a polite or kindly denial once he set down some remarks on this particular phase of correspondence he wrote one no doubt mr edison has been offered a large interest in many and many an electrical project for the use of his name to float it withal and no doubt all men who have achieved for their names in any line of activity whatever a sure market value have been familiar with this sort of solicitation reputation is a hallmark it can remove doubt from pure silver and it can also make the plated article pass for pure and so people without a hallmark of their own are always trying to get the loan of somebody else's as a rule that kind of a person sees only one side of the case he sees that his invention or his painting or his book is apparently a trifle better than you yourself can do therefore why shouldn't you be willing to put your hallmark on it you will be giving the purchaser his full money's worth so who is hurt and where is the harm besides are you not helping a struggling fellow craftsman and is it not your duty to do that that side is plenty clear enough to him but he can't and won't see the other side to wit that you are a rascal if you put your hallmark upon a thing which you did not produce yourself howsoever good it may be how simple that is and yet there are not two applicants in a hundred who can be made to see it when one receives an application of this sort his first emotion is an indignant sense of insult his first deed is the penning of a sharp answer he blames nobody but that other person that person is a very base being he must be he would degrade himself for money otherwise it would not occur to him that you would do such a thing but all the same that application has done its work and taking you down in your own estimation 
you recognize that everybody hasn't as high an opinion of you as you have of yourself, and in spite of you there ensues an interval during which you are not, in your own estimation, as fine a bud as you were before. However, being old and experienced, you do not mail your sharp letter, but leave it lying a day. That saves you for by that time you have begun to reflect that you are a person who deals in exaggerations, and exaggerations are lies. You meant yours to be playful, and thought you made them unmistakably so, but you couldn't make them playfulnesses to a man who has no sense of the playful and can see nothing but the serious side of things. You rattle on quite playfully, and with measureless extravagance, about how you wept at the tomb of Adam and all in good time you find to your astonishment that no end of people took you at your word and believed you, and presently they find out that you were not in earnest. They have been deceived. Therefore, as they argue, and there is a sort of argument in it, you are a deceiver. If you were deceived in one way, why shouldn't you in another? So they apply for the use of your trademark. You are amazed and affronted. You retort that you are not that kind of person. Then they are amazed and affronted, and wonder, since when? By this time you have got your bearings. You realize that perhaps there is a little blame on both sides. You are in the right frame now. So you write a letter void of offense, declining. You mail this one. You pigeonhole the other. That is, being old and experienced, you do. But early in your career, you don't. You mail the first one. 2. An enthusiast who had a new system of musical notation wrote to me and suggested that a magazine article from me, contrasting the absurdities of the old system with the simplicities of his new one, would be sure to make a rousing hit. He shouted and shouted over the marvels wrought by his system, and quoted the handsome compliments which had been paid it by famous musical people. But he forgot to tell me what his notation was like, or what its simplicities consisted in. So I could not have written the article if I had wanted to, which I didn't, because I hate strangers with axes to grind. I wrote him a courteous note explaining how busy I was. I always explain how busy I am, and casually drooped this remark. I judge the XX notation to be a rational mode of representing music in place of the prevailing fashion which was the invention of an idiot. Next mail, he asked permission to print that meaningless remark. I answered, no, courteously, but still no explaining that I could not afford to be placed in the attitude of trying to influence people with a mere worthless guess. What a scorcher I got next mail! Such irony, such sarcasm, such caustic praise of my super-honorable loyalty to the public, and withal such compassion for my stupidity too in not being able to understand my own language. I cannot remember the words of this letter broadside, but there was about a page used up in turning this idea round and round and exposing it in different lights. 
unmailed answer dear sir what is the trouble with you if it is your viscera you cannot have them taken out and reorganized a moment too soon i mean if they are inside but if you are composed of them that is another matter is it your brain but it could not be your brain possibly it is your skull you want to look out for that some people when they get an idea it pries the structure apart your system of notation has got in there and couldn't find room without a doubt that is what the trouble is your skull was not made to put ideas in it was made to throw potatoes at yours truly mailed answer dear sir come come take a walk you disturb the children yours truly there was a day now happily nearly over when certain newspapers made a practice of inviting men distinguished in any walk of life to give their time and effort without charge to express themselves on some subject of the day or perhaps they were asked to send their favorite passages in prose or verse with the reasons why such symposiums were features that cost the newspapers only the writing of a number of letters stationery and postage to one such invitation mark twain wrote two replies they follow herewith unmailed answer dear sir i have received your proposition which you have imitated from a pauper london periodica which had previously imitated the idea of this sort of mendicancy from seventh-rate american journalism where it originated as a variation of the inexpensive interview why do you buy associated press dispatches to make your paper the more saleable you answer but why don't you try to beg them why do you discriminate i can sell my stuff why should i give it to you why don't you ask me for a shirt what is the difference between asking me for the worth of a shirt and asking me for the shirt itself perhaps you don't know you were begging i would not use that argument it makes the user a fool the passage of poetry or prose if you will which has taken deepest root in my thought and which i oftenest return to and dwell upon with keenest no matter what is this that the proper place for journalists who solicit literary charity is on the street corner with their hats in their hands mailed answer dear sir your favor of recent date is received but i am obliged by press of work to decline the manager of a traveling theatrical company wrote that he had taken the liberty of dramatizing tom sawyer and would like also the use of the author's name the idea being to convey to the public that it was a mark twain play in return for this slight favor the manager sent an invitation for mark twain to come and see the play to be present on the opening night as it were at his the manager's expense he added that if the play should be a go in the cities there might be some arrangement of profits apparently these inducements did not appeal to mark twain the long unmailed reply is the more interesting but probably the briefer one that follows it was quite as effective unmailed answer hartford september eight eighty seven 
dear sir and so it has got around to you at last and you also have taken the liberty you are number thirteen hundred sixty five when thirteen hundred sixty four sweeter and better people including the author have tried to dramatize tom sawyer and did not arrive what sort of show do you suppose you stand that is a book dear sir which cannot be dramatized one might as well try to dramatize any other hymn tom sawyer is simply a hymn put into prose form to give it a worldly air why the pale doubt that flitteth the dim and nebulous athwart the forecastle of your third sentence have no fears your peace will be a go it will go out the back door on the first night they've all done it the thirteen hundred sixty four so will thirteen hundred sixty five not one of us ever thought of the simple device of half soling himself with a stove lid ah what suffering a little hindsight would have saved us treasure this hint how kind of you to invite me to the funeral go to i have attended a thousand of them i have seen tom sawyer's remains in all the different kinds of dramatic shrouds there are you cannot start anything fresh are you serious when you propose to pay my expense if that is the susquehannian way of spelling it and can you be aware that i charge a hundred dollars a mile when i travel for pleasure do you realize that it is four hundred thirty two miles to susquehanna would it be handy for you to send me the forty three thousand two hundred dollars first so i could be counting it as i come along because railroading is pretty dreary to a sensitive nature when there's nothing sordid to buck at for zeitver tribe now as i understand it dear and magnanimous thirteen hundred sixty five you are going to recreate tom sawyer dramatically and then do me the compliment to put me in the bills as father of this shady offspring sir do you know that this kind of a compliment has destroyed people before now listen twenty-four years ago i was strangely handsome the remains of it are still visible through the rifts of time i was so handsome that human activities ceased as if spellbound when i came in view and even inanimate things stopped to look like locomotives and district messenger boys and so on in san francisco in the rainy season i was often mistaken for fair weather upon one occasion i was traveling in the sonora region and stopped for an hour's nooning to rest my horse and myself all the town came out to look the tribes of indians gathered to look a piute squaw named her baby for me a voluntary compliment which pleased me greatly other attentions were paid me last of all arrived the president and faculty of sonora university and offered me the post of professor of moral culture and the dogmatic humanities which i accepted gratefully and entered at once upon my duties but my name had pleased the indians and in the deadly kindness of their hearts they went on naming their babies after me i tried to stop it but the indians could not understand why i should object to so manifest a compliment the thing grew and grew and spread and spread and became exceedingly embarrassing 
the university stood it a couple of years but then for the sake of the college they felt obliged to call a halt although i had the sympathy of the whole faculty the president himself said to me i am as sorry as i can be for you and would still hold out if there were any hope ahead but you see how it is there are a hundred and thirty-two of them already and fourteen precincts to hear from the circumstances brought your name into most wide and unfortunate renown it causes much comment i believe that that is not an overstatement some of this comment is palliative but some of it by patrons at a distance who only know the statistics without the explanation is offensive and in some cases even violent nine students have been called home the trustees of the college have been growing more and more uneasy all these last months steadily along with the implacable increase in your senses and i will not conceal from you that more than once they have touched upon the expediency of a change in the professorship of moral culture the coarsely sarcastic editorial in yesterday's altar headed give the moral acrobat a rest has brought things to a crisis and i am charged with the unpleasant duty of receiving your resignation i know you only mean me a kindness dear thirteen hundred sixty five but it is a most deadly mistake please do not name your engine for me truly yours mailed answer new york september eighth eighteen eighty seven dear sir necessarily i cannot assent to so strange a proposition and i think it but fair to warn you that if you put the piece on the stage you must take the legal consequences yours respectfully s l clemens before the days of international copyright no american author's books were pirated more freely by canadian publishers than those of mark twain it was always a sore point with him that these books cheaply printed found their way into the United States, and were sold in competition with his better editions. The law on the subject seemed to be rather hazy, and its various interpretations exasperating. In the next unmailed letter, Mark Twain relieves himself to a misguided official. The letter is worth reading today, if for no other reason, to show the absurdity of copyright conditions which prevailed at that time unmailed letter to h c christiancy on book piracy hartford december eighteen eighty seven h c christiancy esq dear sir as i understand it the position of the u s government is this if a person be captured on the border with counterfeit bonds in his hands bonds of the new york central railway for instance the procedure in his case shall be as follows. 1. If the NYC have not previously filed in the several police offices along the border proof of ownership of the originals of the bonds, the government officials must collect the duty on the counterfeits, and then let them go ahead and circulate in this country. 2. But if there is proof already on file, then the NYC may pay the duty and take the counterfeits but in no case will the united states consent to go without its share of the swag it is delicious the biggest and proudest government on earth 
turned sneak thief collecting pennies on stolen property and pocketing them with a greasy and libidinous leer going into partnership with foreign thieves to rob its own children and when the child escapes the foreigner descending to the abysmal baseness of hanging on and robbing the infant all alone by itself dear sir this is not any more respectable than for a father to collect toll on the forced prostitution of his own daughter in fact it is the same thing upon these terms what is a u s custom house but a fence that is all it is a legalized trader in stolen goods and this nasty law this filthy law this unspeakable law calls itself a regulation for the protection of owners of copyright can sarcasm go further than that in what way does it protect them inspiration itself could not furnish a rational answer to that question whom does it protect then nobody as far as i can see but the foreign thief sometimes and his fellow footpad the u s government all the time what could the central company do with the counterfeit bonds after it had bought them of the star-spangled banner master thief sell them at a dollar apiece and fetch down the market for the genuine hundred-dollar bond what could i do with that twenty-cent copy of roughing it which the united states has collared on the border and is waiting to release to me for cash in case i am willing to come down to its moral level and help rob myself sell it at ten or fifteen cents duty added and destroy the market for the original three dollar fifty cent book whoever did invent that law i would like to know the name of that immortal jackass dear sir i appreciate your courtesy in stretching your authority in the desire to do me a kindness and i sincerely thank you for it but i have no use for that book and if i were even starving for it i would not pay duty on and either to get it or suppress it no doubt there are ways in which i might consent to go into partnership with thieves and fences but this is not one of them this one revolts the remains of my self-respect turns my stomach i think i could companion with a highwayman who carried a shotgun and took many risks yes i think i should like that if i were younger but to go in with a big rich government that robs paupers and the widows and orphans of paupers and takes no risk why the thought just gags me oh no i shall never pay any duties on pirated books of mine i am much too respectable for that yet a while but here one thing that grovels me is this as far as i can discover while freely granting that the u s copyright laws are far and away the most idiotic that exist anywhere on the face of the earth they don't authorize the government to admit pirated books into this country toll or no toll and so i think that that regulation is the invention of one of those people as a rule early stricken of god intellectually the departmental interpreters of the laws in washington they can always be depended on to take any reasonably good law and interpret the common sense all out of it they can be depended on every time to defeat a good law and make it inoperative yes and utterly grotesque too mere matter for laughter and derision take some of the decisions of the post office department for instance 
though I do not mean to suggest that that asylum is any worse than the others for the breeding and nourishing of incredible lunatics. I merely instance it because it happens to be the first to come into my mind. Take that case of a few years ago where the PM General suddenly issued an edict requiring you to add the name of the state after Boston, New York, Chicago, etc., in your superscriptions, on pain of having your letter stopped and forwarded to the dead letter office. Yes, and I believe he required the county, too. He made one little concession in favor of New York. You could say New York City and stop there, but if you left off the city, you must add NY to your New York. Why, it threw the business of the whole country into chaos and brought commerce almost to a standstill. Now think of that. When that man goes to, to, well, wherever he is going to, we shan't want the microscopic details of his address. I guess we can find him. Well, as I was saying, I believe that this whole paltry and ridiculous swindle is a pure creation of one of those cabbages that used to be at the head of one of those retreats down there, departments, you know, and that you will find it so if you will look into it, and moreover, but land I reckon we are both tired by this time. Yours truly, Mark Twain End of section 28 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.